Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O great and praised God, who through the life-giving death of your Christ made us pass from corruption into incorruptibility, deliver all of our senses from deadly passion, setting over them inner reason as a sure guide. And let the eye not look upon evil, nor the ear listen to idle talk, but let the tongue be cleansed of unbefitting speech. Purify our lips which praise you, O Lord. Let our hands abstain from evil deeds, but do only such things as are pleasing to you, having strengthened by your grace all our limbs and our understanding. For all glory, honor, and worship are your due, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's so good to see you. It's so good to have you back. Uh, I, I'm excited about this opportunity. We have uh, a lot of ground to cover. This work I cover uh, in about 30 hours, roughly, uh, in my ethics class uh, that I teach at Christian College. And we're trying to kind of hit the high points, at least, in a little over three hours. So we have our work cut out for us. But again, I think any good lecturer, any good teacher should always be able to condense his outline or expand it. Uh, and so I have uh, committed some effort to kind of condensing my outline, which will hopefully make hitting the high points of this text in an ordered kind of organic way that, that is also thought provoking will be possible. Uh, and so without further ado, OK, uh, let me introduce you to what I hope to accomplish this evening. OK, so we find here, OK, our outline for the evening. OK, there we are. Uh, we're going to review certain principal takeaways, OK, from last Tuesday. And then we're going to move quickly by the end of this first half, okay, into a reflection on virtue in general. And we'll transition from that reflection halfway through the second half of this evening to a reflection on what Aristotle had to say about particular moral virtues, okay? So that is uh, our outline. That's what we intend to do, okay? Now, let me say this right before we dive into things. I believe that what we did last time, Okay, was set a foundation and maybe a frame, okay, uh, up, okay, that begins to give us some inchoate but uh, slightly formed understanding of what Aristotle means about what, when he speaks of human thriving and human happiness. Tonight, we are going to do more work to fill in the gaps and to furnish our house, okay. Uh, now we want to make this intellectual edifice that we're building something that we feel at home, something that we can walk around in, something that we can rest in, something that we can be at peace in. Okay, uh, but again, in order to do that, uh, furnishing 
uh, all, all the garnishing that goes into making a house livable uh, is worth nothing if we don't have a good foundation and is worth nothing if we don't have a home that is properly framed. Uh, and so we're going to spend a brief time, especially uh, since this work of Aristotle is, is a kind of echi architectonic work. It's all organized and ordered. And everything he says builds upon things he said earlier. I am going to commit a, a brief amount of time here at the outset of our evening to kind of point by point, okay, run through the signature principal outcomes from our reflection on the first book of the ethics, wherein Aristotle lays out the overarching, his overarching thought about human happiness that will need to be filled in. Okay. Now, obviously, if you, if you felt like, oh, I, I, I'm still having a hard time fully grasping what exactly he means by human thriving, well, it's because we haven't filled in the gaps. Uh, we saw last time he defines it as an activity of the soul in accord with a life of complete virtue. And yet he's yet to define virtue. That's what we're going to do tonight. And we're going to look at some specific virtues and vices that might uh, undermine man in his ability to thrive. And this, I believe, will allow us to, to have a fully formed, uh, or at least partially formed, because we have more to say from the rest of the ethics our, our last week. But it, it'll give us a great deal more insight uh, into what specifically, what concretely a great human life looks, at, looks like. Okay, and so that's where we're going. Okay, so without further ado, okay, I'm going to roll through uh, the signature takeaways from the different chapters. Okay, of book one that we went over last time. Okay, uh, so the work starts. Okay, once again by clarifying uh, a few matters that are that are of fundamental importance. Now it's called the ethics. Okay, and what does ethics deal with in general? It deals with the morality of human behavior. But before we can talk about the morality of human behavior, Aristotle tries to explain human behavior itself. And that's what he does right out of the gate in the first chapter. And he says that the only way we can explain human behavior is in relationship to those goods, those ends for the sake of which man acts. He argues that any action, okay, or anything man does anything man makes can only be explained by some appetible good. That is some attractive good for the sake of which he acts that motivates him to get off his duff and to do something. Okay. Uh, so the, the kind of the, the diagram that kind of points to that reality uh, we made here. Okay. There is an end or a goal. Okay. That is the reason why man acts. And without a goal to aim at, we could not explain why man does anything, okay? The second takeaway he, he, he gets at right out of the gate is by adding another distinction, that some of the things we aim at are actually aimed at because of some other good to which certain goods are subordinate. In other words, some things we do for the sake of something else. Some things we do are attractive precisely because of the relationship to some other good that makes the subordinate goods themselves attractive. Okay, the example we gave was going, let's say, to the store. For me to go to the store, that is the goal 
okay, that I'm aiming at, if that's the good that is motivating me to get in my car and, and, and to go down the street, that explains why it's good for me to choose to turn right instead of a left on a Shenandoah Shores ride, a drive out here in front of the Institute of the Catholic Culture. The only reason it's a good choice and why it's an attractive option for me to go right is because of its relationship to getting to the store. If my goal is to get to my house, it would not be a good choice, okay, to take a right on Shenandoah Shores Road, but instead it would be a good choice to take a left. And so we find that man only acts for the sake of some good and that some goods are subordinate to other goods and derive their attractiveness from the goods to which they're subordinate. Now, in the second chapter, okay, he then wonders aloud if there could be an unending series of subordinate goods. Now, a subordinate good is an end, okay? It's a good for the sake of which we act. But they're also means to the goods to which they're subordinate. And so he's basically asking the question, could you have an unending series of means? And the answer is no. And why? Because we that would not explain the fact that man does anything. And in point of fact, we do stuff. And the only reason you can explain why man does anything is because there must be some one good that is a chief good, that is an end and not a means that makes every other subordinate means attractive. Because if you were to take that away, an unending series of means has no reason, there's nothing to justify its attractiveness. And therefore, if there's not an unending series of means, men would never act because there'd be nothing motivating them to act. And therefore, there has to be some one end that is a chief good and the explanation behind why we do anything. Okay, and that he then wonders aloud is something we have to discover. We have to discover what that could is because it directs everything we do. We need to know what it is. We need to know what man's end is because, as we said, it gives attractiveness to everything we do. Okay, and therefore, whatever it is, if if we've erroneously thought that it consists in something that is not man's authentic happiness then our action will be going off course and we will be directing our actions towards a good that will not lead to our happiness and thriving. And therefore we need to figure out what it is in order that we might direct our steps toward the achieving of that chief good, okay? Now he also adds uh, very interestingly, and we didn't talk about this, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this now, in fact, we don't have much time. But I'll say he says that the master art or, t- or subject that deals with this is political science. And that might be surprising, but it's the highest form of practical philosophy. Because man achieves his happiness and thriving as a social animal in community. And we're going to come back to that later. Uh, but he wants to make the point that man cannot, man is on an island, and man cannot you know, even pr- you know, provide for all of his temporal needs, let alone his spiritual needs. And therefore, he needs community in order to find this happiness, okay? But more about that later. Uh, running through this, okay? In, in, in uh, the third chapter, I'm not gonna get into this in, in much detail, but it's worth noting again uh, that he makes a few introductory points, just a preamble points, that the subject matter uh, that we're gonna be focused on because it re- involves man's acting in moments uh, that are influenced by a myriad of circumstances, 
the, the level of certitude is going to be less than geometry. There's something called moral certitude we can expect, which gives us good knowledge of how man ought to behave. But because morality, okay, also other practical branches of philosophy like ethics and politics never totally get away from man in the concrete. We always have to take into consider individual humans acting in individual moments. And in order to know how to act, we have to take into consideration a, a host of different circumstances and their demands that they impose on, upon our moral decision making. And therefore, the kind of certitude we can have about what is good, especially what is good to do in the here and now, is yeah, maybe slightly less than perfect. We don't know it with the same degree of certitude we know geometry. Uh, he also then adds, uh, we need to be free uh, from passion, and we need a great deal of experiential wisdom in order to master this science, okay? He then follows a train of reasoning we started with, okay, by pointing out that what is that end at which all men seek, and that's happiness, okay? All men seek happiness. Where we disagree is in the good in which our happiness consists. Some people, it says in chapter four, think it's wealth, other people think it's pleasure. Other people think it's honor. He then returns in chapter five uh, to, to say that, that even people in society uh, can be explained by how they organize themselves around the goods that they love. And he makes the point, which is probably true his, in his time and also true in ours, that the majority of humanity think pleasure. That is kind of a material, uh, temporal, bodily pleasure and, and maximizing it is what man's highest good is. While others think it might be honor, uh, but only the philosopher thinks it's, it's, it's a contemplative act. Uh, and we're going to come back to this, but ultimately he thinks that human happiness is ultimately going to be in a life of complete leisure, which affords man the capacity to contemplate the prime mover, to contemplate God, okay, which is the fulfillment of his rational life. But more about that when we read book 10 uh, on, on uh, next week. okay. He then finally, uh, after skipping six, because it takes us too far afoot, he gets into the definition, okay, of, of, of human happiness in book seven, okay? And, and here is the most important uh, chapter, I'm sorry, in book one. So this is, this is chapter seven of book one. And here he defines uh, the human good to be an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And if there are more than one virtue, in accordance with the best and most complete. But before he gets there, he makes a few other points. As we're looking for the good in which our happiness consists, he says this good must be final, and this good must render, must be self-sufficient, okay? So as we're trying to discern what it may be, he gives us a criteria. It must be final because it's the ultimate end, and therefore anything that's a means to other goods cannot be our final good. Therefore, wealth, okay, he gives us uh, you know, intellectual categories to reject wealth as man's human happiness because we get money and we get money to buy stuff, okay? And so uh, that can't be our highest good. And what's more, it doesn't render man self-sufficient. When we buy stuff, okay, uh, we're not perfectly self-sufficient in our happiness because our stuff can always be taken. And what's more, it doesn't render man perfectly happy in itself, okay? When isolated, it doesn't render us happy. In fact, by accruing wealth, and even by having nice stuff, like when I have a nice guitar, it actually adds certain evils to his life. Once you have nice stuff, you need other goods like power to protect them. 
And so those goods cannot be recognized as goods that render man self-sufficient. Instead, he says, to find man's ultimate good, we have to look at his functionality. Okay, why does he say that? Because we're looking at man's end, man's purpose, man's fulfillment. And we see then that when something achieves its distinct functionality, when something achieves its purpose, it finds its, if you will, happiness or thriving. And so we say, a knife among all the utensils is a utensil for cutting. A good knife, one that is thriving as a knife, will be one that cuts well. And then he says, what is when isolated distinguishes man from all other material things in the universe? He alone can reason. And therefore, human thriving will be a man who reasons well. And when man manifests his rationality, everything he thinks, everything he does, and everything he feels, he will be a thriving man. Now, how to achieve that? Uh, someone could argue this. Okay, ponder this with me. Someone could say, wait a minute. Man is a rational animal already. And so everything he does will be rational. And yet, if you think about this for a minute, every man can play soccer. He just has to kick a ball. Every man can play the piano. He just has to pound on keys. What not every man can do is play soccer well. What not every man can do is to play the piano well. And what not every man can do is to reason well. In order to reason well, we need virtue, which is, as you've already discovered from the reading for today, a habit. It's a habit. And that's what separates Lionel Messi from me when we play soccer. We can both play. He can play well because he has the right habits. That's what separates Chopin from me when we play the piano. He has the right habits. And that's what separates a thriving man from a man who is not thriving, a person who has the right habits. And what are those habits? They are moral habits or states of character and the state of character we call virtue. And virtue gives man the capacity to order all of his actions that he performs by way of the various powers of his soul. It gives him the capacity to perform those well. And so by infusing, for instance, the virtue of prudence into his intellect, he's able to reason well about what he should do in the here and now. By infusing into his will the virtue of justice, man is disposed to do what is good and give to another his due. And by infusing, okay, the virtues of courage and temperance, for instance, into his passions, into his lower sensual appetite, he's able to order his attitude towards temporal evils and sensual goods, okay, so that they don't prevent him uh, from an undue attachment to them or fear of them might not prevent him from being compromised in his goodwill. And thus, a good man will have all the right habits to direct all of his actions and to direct all of his passions so that a rational order might be manifested in everything he thinks, in everything he does, and in everything he feels. 
And this makes man, and now we're going into the next chapter, self-sufficient because he does not cling to the human good is not a good of the body or an external good, which can be taken from him. But the virtues are perfections of his soul. And just like no people can violate your body, they can take your stuff, but they can never violate your intellect. They can never take from you the truths that you know or the goods that you love. So too is the man who becomes and lives a life of complete virtue, that happiness, that perfection, that is a good of the soul that men makes him and renders him self-sufficient in his happiness. In fact, the only person that can compromise and can destroy and erode the happiness of a man who's living a life of complete virtue is himself. If he chooses to willfully abandon the virtuous path. Okay, and so this then is a thriving man who is achieving his functionality. And it renders him, as it mentions in, in chapter nine, this is something permanent and by no means easily changed. For while a single man may suffer many turns of fortune's wheel, uh, the turns of, of temporal fortune's wheel, though it can dispossess men who cling to wealth or cling to power of those goods, the turning of fortune's wheel can never dispossess a man who is living a life of complete virtue. And so in chapter 13, the last chapter of book one, he then outlines okay, for us what this kind of looks like. Okay, So man has, man, the soul is, as we discussed last time in the Q&A, man's soul is, is the form, he says. I wish we could get more into to Aristotelian phys, uh, natural philosophy here. But the soul of man basically makes him to be what he is and to be able to act as a man is capable of acting. And so the soul of man is the seat of his various powers of operation. Okay. Uh, and so it says that if, if we say that, that happiness is an activity of the soul in accord with the life of complete virtue, uh, then we have to study and to study human virtue, uh, we have to uh, study the soul. Okay. And it says the soul has various powers of acting, both rational and irrational, okay? It has both rational and irrational powers. The intellect is the chief of, of man's rational powers. And prudence is going to be seen to be the virtue connected to the moral life that is seated in the intellect. Justice, among other virtues, will be the virtue that is seated in his will. And then among man's irrational powers, okay, these are the powers that man has that makes him like uh, plants and animals. He has vegetative powers that allow him to receive nourishment, okay? Unlike inanimate things, man and plants and animals can be nourished, they can grow, and they can reproduce. Now, reason cannot really affect very much these, these, these basic functionings of man as a vegetative thing. Also, man's senses, okay, can only by, indirectly by way of reason be affected. But in man's passions, which are the movements of his lower appetite, these movements, it says in this text, can, they come under the influence of a rational principle. And what that means is that reason can order our passions so that we learn to fear. We learn to feel anger. We learn to feel desire, 
as we ought as directed by prudence, so that we feel anger to the right extent, at the right time, at the right moment, for the sake of what is just and noble. And the person who is virtuous also will then be able to infuse certain rational tendencies into his emotional life so that his emotions are able to be moved by reason, okay? And so then this lays out the various powers of men that will be perfected by the different virtues that are going to be able to be infused into these various powers, okay? So now then, let's take a look at virtue itself, okay, in this second book. And I'm going to now, and this is going to be my model, I think I'm figuring out this forum here. Uh, in my classes, I have a lot of dialectic, you know, in 30 hours, I, I can Socratic style, work with the students through all of this text. In a straight lecture, I, I carry on much like I have this, this, this evening, uh, where I just kind of speak about the signature takeaways. Uh, but obviously, this is something of a dialectic. It's, it should be favored because we have people that are actively and also passively participating. And so this is where I envision now, again, we're going to discuss that virtue is a mean relative to us. And I think the virtuous way of lecturing in this format that I'm just now discovering will be to obviously kind of lead, especially since we have to cover so much territory, lead things by way of maybe a more traditional lecture. But where I envision you coming in, now that I know that a lot of you are doing a lot of the reading, is I'm now going to ask, as we go through this other section of text, certain key questions, okay, uh, where there is a clear answer, okay, uh, based in the thought of Aristotle. And then I'm also going to get you all to think of what I'll call meta questions, more broad questions that aren't very clearly answered in the text but give you some weighty things to chew on as we discuss the particularities of what Aristotle says. And we will, at the very end of the evening tonight, focus on collectively one of these, what I'll call meta questions. And, and here's a sample of what some of those might be, okay? One of the questions I think that was worth pondering, okay, is this. What does the Christian understanding of happiness have in common, okay, with Aristotle's notion of human thriving, okay? Another way to put that, what are the similarities and dissimilarities between human thriving as outlined by Aristotle and human thriving as outlined by Mother Church? To what extent are they compatible? To what extent do they differ in some important respects? Okay, that's a meta question. We might come back to it at the end. I want you to be pondering. Uh, other kind of deeper questions I, I want you to ponder is, I, I said earlier this evening, and, and we hinted at this last time as well, that a thriving man and all the virtues perfect man, not only in his rationality, but also in man as a so, in his social nature. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, Aristotle defines man not just as a rational, but also in his politics as a social animal. And all the virtues perfect man in his social nature, and all the vices actually make him egocentric, okay, in different ways. And so I want you to ponder this question. If a life of virtue allows man's social nature to thrive, why does Aristotle say that happiness renders a man self-sufficient? Okay, another way to look at this. If 
happiness is associated with man becoming, in some sense, self-sufficient. Does that not contradict what Aristotle says about man's social nature? Okay. These are examples of certain meta questions that I want you to be pondering as we go through the particulars of what Aristotle is discussing. And we might come back to them at the end of the evening. Okay, so without further ado, let's dive into book two. Now here, we get into an understanding of what virtue is, okay? Now, happiness is an activity of the soul in accord with the life of complete virtue. Well, what is virtue? Now, does anyone recognize what, where is the chapter in which virtue is defined, okay? Did you guys find the chapter? where virtue was specifically defined. Uh, it, it's, it's right in the middle there somewhere, okay? So I, I want you to kind of look for that. Do we, do we have anyone who would like to, to take a gander at this? Uh, where is, is so, so we're trying to understand virtue, and there's a place where he defines it rather clearly. And, and, and so in some ways you could see that everything in book two is, is sort of an unpacking, okay, of that definition of virtue. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Yeah, great. Okay, I see uh, Mara. Yeah, go ahead, please. Wasn't book two, chapter six? Oh, perfect. You got it. You got it, Mara. Well done. Did you actually underline where he says that, or are you just kind of going from memory? Because you're right. Okay, you're absolutely on the money with that. Well, uh, yeah, so, I, so, didn't, I didn't underline it. Okay, good. Okay, so, so we'll, we'll try to figure it out, okay? Uh, but but that is a good observation. That is the place. It's kind of right at the heart of that book, and it's it's and so everything can kind of be seen in relationship to it. And so maybe just to, to expedite things, I will quote okay from it for 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 you now. And this will make sense of all the different things that are going on in book two. He says virtue then, and this is about uh, I don't know two thirds uh, or maybe even three fourths of the way okay through this text. He says, virtue then is a state of character concerned with choice, lying in a mean, that is, the mean relative to us, this being determined by a rational principle, and by that principle by which the man of practical reason would determine. (laughs) That's a big definition. And so we're now going to break it into pieces so we can understand it better. But again, virtue is a state of character concerned with choice, lying in a mean, that is the mean relative to us, this being determined by a rational principle, and by that principle by which a man of practical wisdom, okay, would determine it. Now, in the last few minutes before break, okay, let's begin to hit various pieces of that. We'll finish up our discussion of virtue in general, and then at the very end of the hour, get into some of these specific virtues that allow us to see what it looks like in the concrete, okay? So the first part of that is how virtues are states of character. Now, a state of character, I, I will define as a moral habit. A moral habit, okay, is a state of character. And this is discussed in various parts, but especially in the first chapter, okay? He discusses habits, okay? Uh, and virtue is a kind of habit. It's a moral habit, okay, or a state of character, okay? And how are habits formed? Okay, how are habits formed? Let's ask this of you guys. How are habits formed in man? Okay, great. Uh, Teresa, yeah, go ahead and, and make sure you're, you unmute yourself. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. By repetitive action. Yeah, well done. By repeated action, we form habits. So habits are not innate. Habits are acquired. 
They're formed in us through repeated actions. Now, Teresa, you showed your 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 how bright you were last time, and I and and I, I so I know I can go back to the well here uh, and, and push you a little further to add something to to what you've said. Now, it's acquired through actions, and so how is an action that proceeds, maybe even the exact same action that proceeds from a habit different from the same action that is performed without an intervening habit. Uh, how is, in other words, how do habits color our actions? It's reflective. It's oh, okay. uh, reflexive. It's reflexive? Okay, elaborate there. Annie, yeah, yeah, reflexive. Okay, good. You've repeated it yeah. so many times yeah. that you don't have to think about okay, it. There, Okay, there is a good point. So it allows those actions to become like second nature. Does that work with you, Annie? Like they're like second nature. Uh, they, they come forth, therefore, from you without a lot of arduous thought, okay? Uh, and, 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 and how else, uh, Teresa, how else? Uh, how else do habits see a color of actions? Um, by the ease of... Good. Your- yeah, they, they, they come forth with ease. They come forth with pleasure. They come forth with regularity, okay? And, and a kind of correctness, well, if, if they're good habits, okay? And, and so that is going to be the way in which habits color our actions in, in a very particular way. So they are moral habits, okay? Uh, now, what else do we have to say about them? The next thing we're turning to is this fascinating reflection on virtues, okay? And the other part that deals with habits then would be the, the fourth, um, I'm sorry, the fifth chapter. Uh, he mentions other things having to do with them, the states of character, to distinguish them from, okay, other realities within man, like, like faculties or passions, okay? Faculties are powers, and those powers of man are innate. Where are states of character acquired? Both powers, like the power of sight or intellect, dispose us to act, and so do habits. But powers are inborn, whereas states of character are not. They have to be acquired. And are, they're not like, and, and they also have, but, but, but states of character also, actions performed by them are moral. And this sets them apart from passions. So passions can be moral if they're affected by reason, but they are not in themselves moral. They're morally neutral until they come under the influence of reason. And yet, and passions are also fleeting. They come and go. We feel one way and then we change. Whereas once acquired, a habit becomes firmly rooted, disposing you to act. And so even when you're sleeping, you're a guitar player. You are a guitar player. You are just. They come to define us. They define our character. And so, and, and so even when we're not using them, they define us and dispose us to perform act, actions, okay? And, and how are they acquired? Well, they're acquired, he mentions in chapter three, by way of, okay? They're by way, first of imitation. Uh, we imitate how a good man or a just man would act. And this allows us then to act justly ourselves. okay? This is, and this is how we'll finish right before the break. Uh, when I was coaching soccer, uh, you know, I, I was a little bit on the irascible side. And, and I looked down the bench to, to this, this other coach, and he was sit, seated on the bench with the, the, his women's soccer players. Uh, and, and, he, and he was composed and collected. 
And I realized that's what a virtuous coach looks like. I don't have that virtue, but I'm going to imitate him. And eventually it will become my habit. Okay. And that is how we develop habits and begin to act virtuously, even before the virtue has defined us and that we've made it our own. And so virtue is a state of character, a moral habit, which disposes us to act in a characteristic way, in an ordered and morally upright way, okay? So we learned that. We're going to start right after the break, okay? Uh, it's 38 after. We're going to take just three or four minutes. Take till uh, 43, okay? And at 43 after, okay, we're going to come back and we're going to begin speaking of how virtue is a mean. In what sense virtue is a mean, okay? Uh, that is, is going to be the topic of discussion, uh, how vices oppose virtue, how virtues are mean, how vices are manifested by excess and excesses and deficiencies in our actions and passions that prevent us from finding uh, the virtuous way of behaving in any given instance. And we're going to unpack that aspect plus point to particular examples after the break. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll cut to that right away. So see you back at 43 after. Until then, have a nice four minutes off. All right, let's do this, you guys. Welcome back. I know we kind of rolled through things at kind of breakneck pace. We're going to pull in the reins a tiny bit here now as, as we move into new territory and actually savor what are some of the most profound insights, you know, in, in, in ancient philosophy. And so he gets into the reflection now on virtue as a mean, okay? And what it means for it to be a mean and a mean relative to us, what on earth is that about, okay? Now he begins getting into this in the second chapter of book two. When he makes this distinction, he says that in nature, things are compromised by excess and defect, okay? Uh, what on earth is he talking about here? Uh, he he he's, he's trying to say that, you know, the natural health and thriving of a physical thing, now we see this, can be compromised by excess and defect. I'll give an example, okay? If a, a plant has too much water, it's going to be compromised, right? If you don't water your plants, they're going to be compromised, right? If something, if, if we get too little sunshine and other you know, living things get too little sunshine, you know, people from Scandinavian countries, they've got to go under, you know, they got to get some artificial light, got to get some light in, them. you know, the, or physically we begin to break down without exposure to the sun. And yet excessive exposure to the sun is also problematic. Okay, talk to any of our reptilian friends, they'll back you up on this one. Okay, uh, you know, they need to have their heat regulated, you know, these cold blooded animals, you know, by you know, some exposure, you know, but you know, but they're not going to get too much. You don't see our reptiles in the middle of the sun, summer out sunbathing, they come out in the morning and the evening uh, so that they can get just the right amount. Now, how does he use this observation about nature to explain? Healthy, ordered, moral behavior and dysfunctional moral behavior. Let me take a, a, an answer from the gallery. So how does it, he use that observation? Okay, so, so who's, who, 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 who do we got? Yeah, so go ahead, Annie. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So 
for for him for Aristotle, yeah. 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 he uses this term called the mean. Mm-hmm. Good. And it's kind of like the middle ground, the right amount. Yeah. Where you want to be. Yeah. And then he contrasts that with excess or deficiency on either side. Brava. You you said that very, very well. Okay. So just as natural things can be compromised in their health and vitality by excess and deficiency, so too are our actions or passions compromised by excess and deficiency. And therefore, we need to hit the mean in our actions and our passions in order for them to thrive and find the ideal balance. Okay. Uh, we see, okay, for instance, again from chapter two, okay, he says the following, okay, so too is it then in the case of temperance and courage and the other virtues. For the man who flies from feet and fears everything and does not stand his ground against anything becomes a coward. And the man who fears nothing at all but goes to meet every danger becomes rash. And similarly, the man who indulges in every pleasure and abstains from none becomes self-indulgent. While the man who shuns every pleasure, pleasure as boars do, becomes in a way insensible. Temperance and courage, then, are destroyed by excess and defect and preserved by the mean. Okay? And let's take a look at what that looks like. Okay? With every action or passion, Aristotle is going to argue there is a virtuous mean to be found. And it's in finding this mean that our actions and passions manifest the kind of rational order he's talking about in human thriving. Okay? And so we see in regard to the passion or emotion of fear, and by the way, the word passion and emotion are used interchangeably. In regard to that, Passion. Defective fear is vicious. We call that rashness. And excessive fear, we call cowardice. The virtuous mean is courage. And therefore, courage is defined, okay, you know, in re- as, 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 as the mean in regard to the emotion of fears and confidence. Because unlike other virtues, actually, courage and liberality for him are related to two different things. Courage is actually related to two emotions. The other emotion it's related to is confidence. And here you notice the vices have flip-flopped, okay? Defective confidence is what we call cowardice. And excessive confidence we call rashness. And the virtuous mean is what is going to be sought, okay? Now, the same applies to other actions and other passions, okay? And and so we can do this, okay, in regard to all those virtues that are named in Book 2, Chapter 7, okay? Book 2, Chapter 7 gives this cornucopia of virtues. And so what you have to ask yourself is, are we talking about a virtue pertaining to action, or are we talking about a virtue pertaining to passion? Because for Aristotle, okay, and I didn't write this up, I'll do this now, the virtues can be divided as follows, okay? This is how he even begins book two, by separating them into intellectual virtues, 
There are intellectual virtues and there are moral virtues. Okay? The moral virtues can be further subdivided into virtues pertaining to action, and these will be connected to the will or virtues pertaining to passion. Okay, and they will be connected, uh, obviously, to our sensitive appetite. Okay, uh, our, our, our sensitive appetite. Okay, virtues pertaining to action and virtues pertaining to passion. Okay, and so the virtuous man will live a life of complete virtue, the happy man. Okay, and therefore he will be able to find a rational order in all of his emotions, in all of his actions. Okay. Uh, and so, as and so, you can begin to kind of catalog this to see what it looks like. So, reg- in regard to giving money, for instance, there is a mean which is liberality. Okay, the liberal man is disposed to give generously. Okay, and to not fall into defective giving, which is meanness, a kind of Scrooge-like stinginess, but also not to fall into prodigality. Uh, which would be a, a vicious disposition to give excessively, okay? Uh, and, and so this is a kind of schema, a kind of organizational map that you can use to fill in the different virtues and their opposing vices from uh, the section of, 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 of chapter t- uh, seven of book two. To allow you to get an ordered understanding of all these all these virtues, their opposing vices, etc. Okay, and, and so I encourage you to to kind of look into that uh, and to do that, um, you know, at your leisure. Okay, as as you move forward in your in your reflection on his virtue ethics. Okay, and so we see that virtue is a kind of mean. Uh, the best reflection on that uh, we get in the same chapter that we are, are uh, where we find, okay, his definition of virtue, okay? Uh, and so in the section, this is now chapter, two, chapter six, we have his, his most detailed reflection on how virtue is a mean. He says, okay, if it is thus then, that every art does its work well by looking to the intermediate and judging its works by this standard, so that we often say good works of art, that it is not possible either to take away anything or add anything, implying that excess and defect destroy the goodness of works of art, while the mean preserves it. And good artists, as we say, look to this in their work. And if further, virtue is more exact and better than art, as nature also is, then virtue must have the quality of aiming at the intermediate. I mean moral virtue. For it is this that is concerned with passions and actions, okay, as I just outlined in in one of our notes. And in these, there is excess, defect, and the intermediate. And then he begins to now fill in the picture of what this looks like. For instance, both fear and confidence and appetite and anger and pity and in general pleasure and pain may be felt both too much and too little, and in both cases not well. But to feel at them at the right time with reference to the right objects, for the right people, the right motive, in the right way, is what is both intermediate and best. And this is characteristic of virtue. Okay. Now, here is where things get a little interesting. Because he adds, okay, to his reflection on virtue being a mean relative to us, he adds, well, first of all, being a mean, but then he adds this notion of it being a mean relative to us. And he adds to that, this being determined by a rational principle, 
and by that principle by which a man of practical wisdom would determine it. Do you have any idea what he's getting at there? Do you have any idea what he's getting at? Okay. By saying, maybe even start with this idea of it being a mean relative to us. What does he mean by that? Okay. And here's one of the meta questions I want you to begin pondering as well is he's obviously using the word relative. And so how does Aristotle escape the pitfalls of moral relativism by affirming what he's affirming here? Now, he's not a moral relativist, okay? But, you know, he's using the word relative, okay? And so we have to explain in what way is virtue a, a mean relative without making him a kind of relativist, okay? This is a meta question what we might come back to at the end. But first of all, what do you think? Okay, good. Okay, Teresa's got it. Go ahead, Teresa. Yeah. Well, if I am naturally not mm-hmm. a courageous person, if I am naturally a very fearful person, yes. then courage for me is going to look different than a person who is more courageous naturally. Ooh, okay, that's interesting. Okay, that is interesting. Now, I think what he would say there, okay, is, well, how temperament fits in is actually a very interesting thing. You might even be hinting at that a little bit here. But I I would say, hmm, I would say to that, there always is going to be, okay, a proper way to feel in any given situation. But why it's a mean relative to us, okay? is because circumstances have a role to play in where the virtuous mean is to be found. And so, uh, as we're familiar as Catholics, in Lent, the virtuous mean in regard to eating and drinking is not what the virtuous mean is in regard to eating and drinking during the season of Easter. Now, what determines that? What determines that is this principle by which the man of practical reason would determine it. That principle, and it's referred to first in chapter two of this section, the common principle the, the, which he refers to as a right rule is the rule of reason manifested by way of prudence, okay, which is practical wisdom, okay? And so it is prudence, which gives us the habitual capacity to know what to do in the here and now in light of all of the present circumstances. Prudence gives us the, 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 the moral dexterity to do exactly what we ought in the here and now. And we discover that the virtuous mean is ever changing. And the virtuous mean is, and this is where I think Teresa mentioned a, a good point. I would say this, the virtuous mean for her might not be exactly what it is for someone else, okay? For instance, the person who's made a lifelong commitment to abstain from alcohol, to have a thimble full of alcohol, is radical self-indulgence. But to the Jew who is having his Seder meal, okay, and he's only had three cups of wine, he could be guilty of insensitivity by not having that fourth cup. Why? Because the prudent man sees in the situation what is just and honorable and good is to have this much alcohol. And so, okay, human nature is consistent. 
And what it takes for human nature to thrive is consistent. And yet circumstances demand that the mean changes ever so slightly depending on circumstance, okay? And, and, and now, now let's say, and this is kind of maybe where um, uh, Teresa was going a little bit even with her answer. How do we know? How do we know where we fall on the spectrum in regard to these virtues and vices? How do we know if we're a mean man? How do we know if we're a prodigal in regard to giving of money? How do we know we're irascible? And irascibility is an excess of anger associated with the virtue of gentleness. How do we know that we're a bore? And the bore is deficient in giving amusement. Okay, he can't make a joke or laugh at a joke, uh, and he's useless for social interaction, according to Aristotle. How do we know where we fall, what our state of character is in regard to these virtues and vices? What does he say is an indication where we are on the spectrum? How about this? He mentions it you know, in chapter three. He says, by the pleasure and pain, by pleasures and pains that we experience when we act and feel. Okay. For instance, the virtuous man, the liberal man, takes pleasure in giving as he ought. Okay, the mean man takes pleasure in not giving money he should give. And he experiences pain in giving the amount of money he should give. The prodigal, on the other hand, experiences pain when he doesn't give too much. And he only experiences pleasure when he gives too much. And so we find that the virtuous man takes pleasure in feeling and acting as he ought and derives pain from acting excessively or feeling excessively or feeling defectively or acting defectively. Whereas the opposite characters, the opposing vices, they experience pleasure in their disorder and pain when they act according to the mean. Okay, all of this is very fascinating observations that he makes. Okay, now let's enlarge our reflection still further. Okay, by reflecting more on the relationship, okay, between uh, these uh, these different uh, the mean and and its opposing vices. Okay, now moving into okay uh chapter eight okay which is right after the section that gives all the virtues and the different vices he makes some very interesting observations here in this chapter okay and he says this okay uh he says that the mean is less opposed to either extreme than the vicious extremes are to one another Okay, what on earth does he mean by that? He says, the virtuous mean is less opposed, and this is kind of how it's a mean, in regard to either extreme, than the extremes are to one another. Does anyone have any idea what he means by that? Okay, great. Go for it, Annie. Yeah. So it's almost like a, like 
a mathematical concept. Yeah, it, it is. And he, get, he uses math in this to explain this. So, yeah, well done. So uh, elaborate. Yeah, go. So, so behaviorally or. Yeah. Yes. There's there's a greater difference, say, between the mean between excess and deficiency yep. Yep. than there is between the mean and excess and the mean and deficiency. You know, I can see, and this is what's so beautiful, is Aristotle is saying in all these kind of compl- complex terms what you are already aware of about human experience. He's just giving kind of technical terms to make sense of it. Okay. And, and you're exactly right. And here is the example, okay, using what we just referred to uh, by, by way of courage. What does courage then have in common with rashness? It has co- in common with rashness a willingness to face terrible evils like death. Both the courageous man and the rash man are willing to face terrible evils. And what is in common between the courageous man and the coward? They calculate before they act. The courageous man calculates before he acts, and so does the coward. Unfortunately, the coward is all calculation and no willingness to act, and the rash man is all willingness to face temporal evils, but has deficient capacity to calculate before he acts. But the rash man and the coward are utterly opposed in this sense, okay? Uh, Because the the coward has obviously zero willingness to face evils, and the rash man has zero calculation. And therefore, they are utterly opposed to one another. And the virtuous mean is a middle state that has something in common with either vice. Now, this leads us to another fascinating kind of meta question, and that is this. Does that not mean that virtue should be associated with mediocrity? Remember, our Lord says, I I, I spit the lukewarm out of my mouth. Be thee either hot or cold. And are are we not saying that virtue is kind of lukewarm, kind of tepid? Uh, or, or how might we recapitulate our thought here in such a way that we can actually still think of the virtuous mean as being a state of excellence, okay, and, and not mediocrity? Let's just even ask that right now. How is virtue, though it's a mean, in regard to our passions or actions, having something in common with either extreme? How is it still, in its own sense, objectively, a kind of extreme? Yeah, Teresa, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's a willingness to live and to do what is right, whereas mediocrity is a, is a longing for nothing. It's Okay, I like this. Okay, so in, in, in the virtuous man in his, in his emotions and, and his actions is striving for moral rectitude to feel exactly as he ought in a situation, to act exactly as he ought. And he says that is difficult in the extreme. It is difficult in the extreme to hit the mean. Okay. And that is, and therefore it's, it's in this sense. And that's why I drew these, these, these charts as I did. Okay. You notice that the virtue is a mean, but I put it up higher. Okay, and so on this axis, now we're, we're getting even more mathematical here. 
There is a distance from each vice that is the same. In other words, each vice represents a missing of the mark, okay? And each vice represents moral disorder, moral failure. And yeah, you can fail in one or two ways. You can act excessively or defectively, and they're both failures, but they both manifest a lack of moral rectitude, whereas the virtuous mean manifests perfect moral order. The perfect moral order, being disposed to feel perfectly, to act perfectly in regard to certain actions or passions, or to feel and act in a given moment in exactly the right way. And it's in this sense that virtue is both a mean, but in terms of, of it in relationship to moral excellence, it manifests extreme moral excellence, whereas each vice represents a different flavor of moral dysfunction. Okay? All right. Now, uh, so many good things. Now, he mentions something that is very, very fascinating uh, in, in the ninth chapter, last chapter of book two. He mentions something very interesting here uh, about his advice. Does anyone remember what advice he gives? Now, here is getting into something. Now, we all have our own. Mm, uh, there's, an, there's another good takeaway from actually chapter eight that I'll mention. There's a way of discovering which of the opposing vices is worse because it's almost always the case that one of the vices is worse than the other one. Like, like what do you think? Like, like what is worse, rashness or cowardice? Like, who do you hate more? The coward or the rash man? Yeah, everybody hates the coward. You know, it's less attractive. There's something about the rash man, like, you know, who's just throwing himself in battle, but, but, it, but, but, but without sufficient foresight and, and forethought, without deliberation. Ah, that, that, that's obviously missing the mark, but there's something admirable about him. Okay. Whichever vice, okay, then we actually, he says, we tend to. Whichever vice we tend, and humans just have certain tendencies to miss the mark. And, and I think actually this is sort of Aristotle's way of speaking about the fall. You know, we have certain tendencies to miss the mark. And so, and whichever tendency we incline to most is going to be worse because we have to work harder to oppose that tendency. Okay. And so, for instance, in regard to uh, cowardice, we incline to avoid temporal evils. Yeah, you know, we incline to cowardice more. And therefore, we have to work extra hard to face down temporal evils as the Celts do, he says. And he says the in, uh, uh, or, or the Celts are kind of rash. And, they, and, they go, and that goes hand in hand with a vicious disposition associated with temperance, which is insensitivity a kind of puritanical attitude towards sensual goods of touch and taste. Uh, all, you know, to, to, that is more atypical. What is more typical is to self-indulge, to be inclined to overindulge in sensual goods of touch and taste. Okay, And therefore, the virtuous mean should err on the side of insensitivity. And the virtuous mean should err on the side of rashness, okay? Now, he adds, though, and this is why virtue is a mean relative to us, he recognizes that with some of us, we just have different habits. 
And so for some of us, we actually might tend toward rashness. And for some of us, we might tend towards insensitivity. And therefore, for us, okay, we should aim at the opposing vice. Because to the insensitive man, to have maybe any food at all is going to feel excessive. Okay? It's going to feel excessive. And therefore, he might err on the side, potentially, of of having a little more than he would think is appropriate. Okay? And this is the very interesting thing that he says. For of the extremes, one is more erroneous, one less so. Therefore, since to hit the mean is hard in the extreme, we must, as a second best, as people say, take the least of the evils. And this will be done in, in the best way we describe. And that is by looking honestly at ourselves and ascertaining where our own tendencies lie. Okay. And, and there, and then looking to virtuous individuals and then look to maybe err on the opposing side. But now, uh, as I want to make a few general remarks before our time is up in less than five minutes, okay, I I want us to keep this in mind. As he speaks of, of, uh, as we noted just a moment ago, okay, virtue is is, is moral excellence. And therefore, it's not associated with mediocrity. And so when he speaks of temperance, the temperate man, and that's why I like the word temperance better than moderation. It's not that the temperate person just doesn't eat too much and doesn't eat too little, but he is aware that as a virtue, as a mean relative to us, that temperance is not incompatible with feasting and temperance is not incompatible with radical asceticism because he's aware what is the prudential and good mean for a given individual in a certain state of life might look to others as extreme but might actually for that individual taken the circumstances of their life and their commitments actually be appropriate, okay? Uh, and that is, and this allows, okay, for our, us to be able to find who we are in Christ and to be able to thrive in certain ways. Now for us, there always will be, and this is how there's an objectivity to his thought, there always is going to be a right way to feel and act in any any given situation, okay? And we can either act excessively or feel excessively or defectively. And so there always is a right norm for us, but that has to be determined through a great deal of self-knowledge. And therein, prudence is so important. But he also would add, and this is something Joseph Pieper adds, and he reflects on prudence, the best person to make a call for us Okay, and he says, and again, I think it's important that the whole of the moral law, we talked a little bit about this in the Q&A last time. The whole moral law is, is universally binding upon all men. And so the wiggle room we're talking about is within the confines, the parameters of the moral law. But then we have to know ourselves and to know where we fit in the body of Christ in serving it in the, the polis, okay, in the city, where we fit, where our service fit. Because what will then be asked of us has to be contextualized by who we are individually. And therefore, we need a very detailed self-awareness. And we need to follow the admonition on the portal of Delphi to know thyself. In order to thrive in the moral life, you have to have a great deal of self-knowledge. And this is where examination of conscience comes in. And you ask yourself at the end of the day, where did I miss the mark in regard to my actions or passions? Where did I hit the mark? 
and to try to build on those areas in which you're strong and to avoid those areas in which you're weak. Okay. And, and that, that is, I think, something that uh, I, I, I think can highly, greatly enrich our, our reflections, even during this, this time of Lent, about who we are and where we fit in the body of Christ. Because then this is interesting. Uh, Pieper, Joseph Pieper, a Thomistic philosopher, says that then the, the best person to judge what the virtuous mean is for you in a given situation is yourself. Because you're the one who knows yourself best and the situation. And if there is someone who could give prudential advice, it probably is not your, your philosophy professor who could paint maybe the general framework for the moral life, but it'll be a friend, someone who knows you or someone like a spiritual director, okay, who knows what you ought to do, okay? Uh, and, and, and this is just some, some very kind of profound insight that kind of allows what we're reading here to dovetail with other things we're familiar with uh, from a Christian perspective about the moral life, okay? Now, uh, we're running out of time. I, I am going to kind of run more through maybe very particularly some of these virtues. And so take time to maybe fill in that chart I gave. And we're, we're going to talk about how all the virtues perfect man in his rational nature and social nature, maybe a little bit more at the beginning of next hour before we talk about what I just mentioned, friendship, okay? And the role friendship has in man becoming perfect. And then we'll also reflect uh, what he says at the very end about how a life, an ordered life, uh, sets the stage uh, for a life of contemplation. Uh, and man's intellect becoming perfect entails his contemplating the highest and most ultimate causes, uh, including the prime mover or his God principle, and how that is deeply connected to man and his thrive. Okay. So there's so many other things to reflect on, but but there we go. I, I think we made some good headway tonight. I'm actually really pleased with uh, us being able to digest, I think, many of the signature takeaways. There's more that I wouldn't mind reflecting on because he does make room for external goods a little bit in a life of complete goodness. He doesn't remove them entirely because you need some goods of the body in order to even have a good and thriving uh, spiritual life or moral life, a life of the mind. Uh, he makes a bunch of other distinctions we didn't have a lot of time to get into, but we hit a lot of the signature takeaways. Uh, and we didn't talk also about how uh, it's a, it, it, virtue is a moral, how virtue is a state of character concerned with choice, okay? Because the actions, the specific actions that create moral virtue, moral habits, are choices, which entail voluntary actions, okay? Not being coerced or forced into doing something, not doing something out of ignorance, but with and through deliberation, okay, and with freedom and, 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 and knowledge, we're able to perform human acts that form, okay, uh, these kinds of moral virtues in us, okay? And that covers most of the signature ends that I wanted to get at, uh, minus some of the particulars of all these really fun virtues to reflect on, which we might start off next week with discussing in more detail. But there we go. Uh, we have room for maybe even some of those meta questions and to talk about those, or maybe even just to reflect on the questions, uh, Andy, that we're getting from those present and also those who are passively uh, taking in our meeting. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. Lynch. Yeah. And uh, th this is really just awesome insight. I don't know about you, but I think the tendency is before we're aware that there's two ways in which we can go wrong on something, we tend to view there to only be one, right? And, 
and Aristotle's notion of, okay, no, wait, the right way of acting is going to be in between two extremes helps us remain a lot more balanced uh, in our development. We're going to start things off from Ann Shear, and I'm going to slightly modify your question just to um, um, make it a little bit more uh, whatever, limit the scope of it. But Ann's wondering, according to Aristotle's model here, and you have that diagram, right, with yeah. the extremes on either side, does Aristotle hold that you have to pass through the mean in order to move from one extreme to the other? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question. So he gets into this when he deals with the, the, the virtues in particular. <clears throat> and, and if I had to summarize some of his signature takeaways here, is that often, and I think we find this in our own life, see if this resonates with your experience. I think it resonates with mine, is that we vacillate. Okay, between it's kind of like you know you, 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 when you're trying to get the scale just right. Okay, it's like you, you put on a, a little too much, a little too, yeah, and you kind of go back and forth as you're trying to kind of find the mean. And, and so an example of that, okay, is often uh, with the the coward. He's so habituated to not face temporal evils that when he faces them, he doesn't face them in the right way. He just like. Aah! throws himself into things, you know, like kind of excessively, you know, uh, and, and, and it takes more time to find that virtuous me. An, another subtlety uh, I, I think that, that he references that I think is interesting is sometimes what appears to be someone's state of character can actually mask the opposing vice, okay? And an example, given the virtues you read about, uh, would be, uh, for instance, um, the, the coward often masks his cowardice by bravado, like false bravado, boasting, okay? And being all, like a great example of this is the movie Henry V, like Kenneth Branagh. Uh, it it manifests exactly what Aristotle's saying here. When the French camp, the night before battle, they're like, oh, my horse, oh, my, uh, my shield. Oh, uh, my shield is the best. My armor is the best. My horse is the best. I'm going to slaughter 300 Englishmen. I can't wait for morning. But when they face the terrors of battle, they shrink. Uh, whereas the courageous man, Aristotle says, is quiet beforehand. He almost looks the part of the coward. But when it's time to face the temporal evils that he needs to face, as the English, you know, uh, after the St. Crispin's Day speech, they throw themselves into the fight and were victorious against, you know, the Battle of Ashenkor, against, you know, being greatly outnumbered. And, and so sometimes, too, I think that's another wrinkle that he allows for, is that sometimes uh, uh, we can mask our state of character, and, and we often do that by kind of, going overboard, you know, in, in certain ways to try to mask the, the inner disposition that we actually have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But great question. Great question. I hope that helps. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I'm going to combine two questions from Martha and Alexandra. Martha and Alexandra are kind of wondering the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, from, from what they're hearing tonight, it seemed to them like mm -hmm. what was being asserted was this. Yeah. That if you acquire some virtue, mm -hmm. once you get it, Mm -hmm. you kind of like got it made it, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah. but can't virtue weaken or can it be replaced yeah. by habit? And I'll explain. Well, okay, that, thank you so much for the, the great question because I, I think it allows me to clarify something that might not have been fully clarified. So virtues are acquired. Okay, they're not realities. We're inborn. They have to be acquired. They're acquired, as we already discussed, through repetitive action. But I think something that they have to be, they are reinforced by actually acting upon those dispositions, okay? And if we don't use them, we can lose them, okay? Uh, and that is, I think, actually a really important point that I'm really glad you made. And this is also where we remember, I never reflect on this fully, uh, when it says virtue. Happiness is an activity of the soul in accord with the life of complete virtue. Well, what does he mean by an activity? Mm-hmm. His point there is that life is best when it's lived. Okay. And so taking another movie analogy uh, in, in Batman Begins, the one with Christian Bale, there, there's a moment where he's like faking like he's this playboy when he's really kind of not. Um, and, and he runs into his, his flame, this, this, the woman he's had a crush on his whole life. And he's got you know, a woman on each arm and, and, and he runs into her and, 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 he, and, and, he's, and he says in his Christian Bale voice, uh, this is not me. And, and, and his, his, uh, his uh, flame says, you know, uh, what, what, he says, it, it, she says, it's not who you are underneath that counts, but it's what you do that defines. Okay. And so it's not, as Aristotle points, it's not an Olympian who has all the greatest skill that is excellence if he never uses it. And, and so our greatest excellence is manifested in the expression of that excellence, the actuality of us, of acting on these virtuous dispositions. And, and, and not surprisingly, that's also what preserves them. Okay. Uh, which is a really, really good point. Really glad you asked that question. Uh, and, and and to finish the point from the movie, that's where you know, the, the the Christian Bale character, Bruce Wayne, gets his revenge <laughs> when he saves his flame's life. Okay, as Batman, and then uh, she says, "Who are you?" And he's like, "It's not who you are underneath the counts. It's what you do that defines you." And he jumps off a building, you know, and flies uh, you know, around to save more people's lives. And he was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I had that virtue all along. You just weren't aware of it." And, and, uh, you know, that, that, that I think makes that point really well. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca writes in here and, uh, saying, why, why is reason, uh, instead of love, why is it reason that Aristotle sort of isolates instead of love as that, which differentiates us from animals? Yeah, it's, it's a very, very good question. Okay. It's clear they kind of go hand in hand. Okay, uh, so so reason and 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 uh, and love, which is associated with for him, justice is is the quintessential uh, virtue of the intellect, not not caritas or or love as much. I mean, we might get into that a little bit more when we get into some when I have more time to say something more about the specific virtues. Um, but but I I think actually when he uses the word reason, it it allows you to actually speak about all that is rational in man, both the, the acts of his intellect and the acts of his will. And so there's a sense in which, you know, because again, the will is man's rational appetite, okay? So you manifest your rational nature by having an appetite above passions, you know, which, which animals have. 
Uh, and so uh, there's a way in which reason covers all of that, which is which are the man's special uh, powers of his soul that he has that no one else has, which is his intellect and his will. And so reason kind of covers both of those and acts performed by both of those powers. Um, and yet he, he will ultimately say, as Aquinas does, okay, that in man's perfection, there is more finality, he would say, in the possession of knowledge of, of, of man's highest good. Uh, and, 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 and he would, kind of like Aquinas says that, that man's uh, full happiness is in the vision of God. Um, and yet that overflows, doesn't it, into his will. And so even Aquinas is not that, yet, that overflows and, and our will is, is satisfied and, and filled, okay, with love in, in that moment as well. So, so I, I don't know. He, he tends to, uh, we know that the, the whole Franciscan tradition errs on the side of, errs on the side of love, it errs. Uh, the, the Dominican tradition errs on the side of, of the intellect. Uh, but I guess maybe we can satisfy ourselves here by, by at least recognizing that when he says reason, uh, it, it means that uh, uh, it also can refer to the will. And I, and I would say this, though. Reason is the primary, uh, and prudence is the first of the cardinal virtues. And, and it's hierarchically first for this reason. You can never do good or feel good in the right way if you don't know what the virtuous mean is. And it's prudence that determines what the mean is in a given situation. And so without reason, you could never love. You cannot love what you don't know. And so there is a causal hierarchical uh, uh, priority of reason to will in that sense. Uh, is that you cannot do good without knowing what is good. So the whole ability to find the virtuous mean without reason is, is impossible. It's what determines it in every given moment and allows you to will what is good or to feel as you want uh, is, is only because you know what is good. And I guess that would be another sense in which it has a kind of priority. Okay, But it doesn't mean it's at the exclusion of the other. I think that's important. Okay? You know, it's a good place to... to... Mm -hmm. To, to end here too, because it's a re reminder. I mean, this is part of what we're doing here at the Institute, right guys? Like mm -hmm. we're not here just to tickle mm -hmm. our intellect mm -hmm. and, and satisfy our curiosity, but we're trying to better understand who God is, not so that we simply understand who he is, mm -hmm. but so that we can love him. And uh, we never want to isolate those two things. Yeah. So, Thanks for that reminder, Dr. Wunsch. Yeah, uh, you're most welcome. And, and what's good, I can even see more questions coming in, which is kind of fun. And, and, and that's a sign. As I mentioned, I got something right last time. And I think <laughs> the thing I got right last time was the more you know and the more you learn, the more questions you're going to Okay? Mm -hmm. Not the less. And that's actually a sign that you're growing in wisdom, is that you are able to see out into the horizons of your own ignorance and begin to ask questions you couldn't have even formulated, you know, before you learned something, okay? And, and that is, I think, a really important takeaway. Uh, it's a sign of your mind and also your, your heart being able to expand, okay, which is the purpose of, of the intellectual life. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, you're most welcome. Look forward to discussing on St. Patrick's Day, friendship with you and virtue and contemplation, some really good things. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.